Hello, Dave. Hello, Ollie. Uh, excited to be here with you again. This is Sustainable, your weekly podcast about the environment and why it's all so confusing. And where are we? We are in a hotel room. <laughs> we are in a hotel room in central London, and we are delighted to be with Dr. Carl, uh, who we are interviewing today about all things uh, environment and Australian politics and Australian environment and science. <laughs> G'day, Dr. Carl. Oh, hi, um, Dr. Dave and Dr. Ollie. Look, I'm, <laughs> I should point out I'm not a real doctor. Oh, well, neither are we, so uh, that's Really? Fine. Yeah. Ah, you see, I'm only a medical doctor, and according to the university system, um, to be a real doctor, you have to have a PhD, whereas Ooh. a medical doctor has only an honorary title oh, of did doctor. did not know that. Well, the degree I've got, or the twin degrees, a Bachelor of Medicine and Bachelor of Surgery. Okay. So I live in the, physics, the School of Physics at the University of Sydney, and so I'm made aware of the fact that I'm not a real doctor. But on the other <laughs> hand, I do glory in the fact of um, being the least smart person in the whole building, which is good because that way I can learn from everybody around me. I find that very hard to believe. I'm like, he's only 110, <laughs> but I work hard. See, Maria Maldau got it right when, in her song when she said, it ain't the meat, it's the motion. It's what you do with what you got. <laughs> Well, I assure you, Dr. Carl, you're not the least smart person sitting around this table at the moment. What we do in our podcast is we uh, admit that we don't know an awful lot of things that we probably should know about the environment and saving the planet and technology and even basic stuff like, you know, what the best thing to have for breakfast is and all that sort of stuff. So we're delighted to, to have you with us to, mm. to talk a bit. Oh, Could you, you? It is possible that there are some people listening to our podcast who won't know who you are and what you do. Could you, have ah, you got like a, a little, little yeah. uh, summary? I, I have one Nobel Prize for my groundbreaking work into belly button fluff and why it's almost always blue. Uh, and I have 28 years of education, starting off in baby jail and working my way through kindergarten up into university and have four degrees in physics and mathematics and biomedical engineering and medicine and surgery, as well as several non-degree years of study in computer science, astrophysics, philosophy and electrical engineering. But I get my real education by reading through $10,000 worth, or I think in English money, that's 3p. £2.50. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, something like that, yeah. of uh, scientific literature every year, which is a pile about a metre thick every month. And so I read that, and then from there I get my further ongoing education. And then I try to turn this into stories, and I've just finished my 38th book, which should be coming out shortly, and I've worked in all of those other jobs I've mentioned, as well as a TV weatherman, a car mechanic. Um, a ro- have you heard of Brody. Bo Diddley? Yeah. yeah. I was a roadie for Bo. <laughs> For a couple of years. Wow. So uh, I was already for Bo Diddley and... I was already excited. And, and a taxi excited. driver and a whole bunch of different jobs. Uh, but I don't do any of that sort of stuff. Basically, I now work as a government agent, um, working for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation the University of Sydney, writing stories in books. And you turn up on BBC Radio every week as well? Every week on uh, the unadvertising time of three to four every Thursday morning. Yeah. You can get on a podcast and then I do about five different podcasts. Or, and um, also do books and TV and radio and media slut, is that the term? <laughs> Sorry. At least I call myself that, that's okay. So according to, you wouldn't believe it from walking around out there, 2015 is supposed to be the hottest year 
ever recorded, or at least as far as records have began. That's according to, I think, NASA? Came out uh, a whole bunch of people. Had Crud, NASA, yeah. all of them compiled. So what's happening is that um, beginning with the official modern meteorological records as recorded in a thing called a Stevenson box, and he was related to Robert Louis Stevenson, uh-huh. um, beginning in the 1800s. Uh, 2014 was the hottest year on record, and before that you had 2010, 2005, 98. And then in the seven, eight months of this year that have already gone, six of the eight have been the hottest months ever individually recorded in the history of the human race for that particular month. So June was the hottest June, August was the hottest August, etc. And relentlessly the temperature is climbing. Global warming is real, we cause it, it's going to be bad. And in fact, this was recognised by the insurance companies earlier on before the scientists, because they don't need as strong a burden of proof. So Munich Re, mm. as in reinsurance, the mm-hmm. world's largest insurance company, was already factoring climate change into its premiums in 1972. They had, and but it took the scientists a bit longer because they wanted a higher burden of proof in 1988, over a quarter of a century ago. And for a few years, nobody really bothered much except in the fossil fuel people realised that this could cut across their future income. And rather than saying, look, we're in the business of supplying energy, they took the narrow view and said, we're in the business of supplying fossil fuel energy. And this has then led to them funding the massive denialist campaigns. Read the book by Naomi Oreskes, Merchants of Doubt. Yeah. Great book. Yeah. yeah. So, but, but it's definitely real. Global warming is real. We cause it's going to be bad. There's no doubt about it. So you're very sure about that, as you would be having read the science, presumably, and being on top of it. But what, what is it that you need? You're a man of science. What is it that you need to be as sure of something? as oh. you are of, of climate change. Oh, that's easy. Luckily, uh, I'm well-read in many different fields, but only shallowly, and I'm well-read enough to realise what I don't know. And from that, you get the beginning of wisdom. So I know that I am not an expert in metallurgy, geology or paediatric oncology. And I'm not going to come up to a random paediatric oncologist and say, mate, when you're treating um, chronic myeloid leukaemia, you shouldn't really be using cyclophosphamide, you should be using 5-thiouracil. I've got no idea, (laughs) nor do I have about geology. What I do is very simple. Whatever field of knowledge I look at, I just simply go with the opinion that is the overwhelming majority, and it's got to be 95% plus. And so 95-plus percent of climate scientists reckon that global warming is real, we caused it, as the metallurgists overwhelmingly reckon that to turn iron into steel, you have to add carbon. If you want to treat a kid with chronic myeloid leukaemia, use this and that. If it's Hodgkin's leukaemia, use vinblastin or vincristine. The whole permanent... I just simply go with the overwhelming opinion. If it's 50-50, forget it. They don't know. But if it's 95%, that's good enough. So that's, that's fascinating. And that means that you're very sure about something and presumably you can communicate that. But that's based on having read an awful lot of stuff. And what about for the people who haven't read an awful lot of stuff and have busy lives and are not kind of fossil fuel lobbyists, they're not sort of naturally on the other side, but they're instinctively sceptical about mm. being told that something really, really bad is coming. And I thought, you know, I count people I know in this in this camp, you know, they just don't believe it when people say, it's going to be awful, we're all going to die, all the fishes are going to die. Um, how do we, as, well, how do you as, as a man of science and your community effectively communicate that to lay people? Um, stick to the facts 
And if there's a message of hope, give it. And luckily there are two messages of hope in all of this. One is um, that the next generation is smarter than us. When you have kids, they'll be nine IQ points smarter than you. Wow. Did you read this in my 36th book? <sighs> like a knife into the heart. Oh. Podcast audience, <laughs> they didn't read my book. Okay. So James Flynn and many others have done the work and looking at not just America, where it started, but the, all the developed countries. From 1932 onwards, the IQ is going up by nine points per generation. Wow. And so there's a standard IQ test called the WISC, which you might have heard of if you've done psychology, W-I-S-C, Weschler Intelligence Scale for Children, I think it is, and they've had to scale it up over and over again. So uh. if you gave last generation's kids... Uh, if you, sorry, if you gave today's kids the test from one generation ago, instead of getting 100 on average, they get 109. So they've always had to scale up. So the first thing is that we're getting smarter. Not too sure why, but the, the brain is a fluid, flexible learning device, among other things. Second thing, we are living in the most peaceful time ever. Now, you might not believe this by looking at the media, but um, it's because the media have got a very simple five-word motto. If it bleeds, it leads. If you've got a choice between a school getting a new library or a terrible accident between a bus uh, involving ducks and nuns and orphans, <laughs> yeah, they'll go with that every time. And, 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 a bit like this podcast. Yeah, well, much, yeah. <laughs> and, and so if you, there's a wonderful book by Stephen Pinker called The Better Angels of Our Nature. I apologise for the fact that it's 800 pages long and it's got really small writing. <laughs> <laughs> so you, to read, but read it, and at the end of that, you'll say we are living in the most peaceful time ever. Things are bad, but we can do something about it. We could go, if we wanted to, to a war footing and not burn any fossil fuels at all to get the energy we need within 10 years. In 1941, I think it was, or 40, uh, on the 7th of December, Pearl Harbour got bombed. Within nine months, the number of cars made by the, Brit- by the American car factories was zero. They'd switched over entirely to war material. So we could do the same thing. Uh, the, uh, just on solar cells, assuming that you get a bunch of solar cells and you cover a block of land, um, if, and you only cover one-third of it to allow for access and shadowing, if you get a block 50 kilometres by 50 kilometres, that would power all of Australia which has nothing to do with the United Kingdom, but if you get 500 kilometres by 500 kilometres, which is a tiny dot in Australia, you could feed the whole world with electricity, but only during the daytime hours. That then assumes that you then need a worldwide grid and you have it distributed. We could do it really Mm -hmm. easily. I just hope that the energy companies would accept this. I've just been reading now in The Guardian about how the energy companies acknowledged climate change in the early 70s Mm -hmm. and then said... Well, what if we change our way of doing business? We might be different, could lose the profit. Let's just keep, just do BAU, business as usual. So yeah. how, how do you convince people? You stick to the facts. And luckily, some of the newspapers lie, so you can break those facts. Is there a newspaper here called the Daily Mail? Yes. Yeah. I read that on the way over <laughs> yes. from Rome to here. It was amazing how many errors you can pick up in such a short period of time. It's, uh, it's, it's famous it, for it, yeah. Really? Yeah. But there is a fact, like one plus one equals two, uh, or three, or four. It was amazing. Um, the reading Anything they had to do with science mm. was sort of half right or wrong. So you said um, you're optimistic that, 
if it came to it, we could chuckle our eggs in the basket and sort out climate change and the people are going to be clever in the future and you've got a, a basic message of optimism in humanity's ability to if the chips are down do mm. something but it doesn't feel to us i guess in a lot of the stuff we look at in our podcast as if we are anywhere near the point where that's going to happen so at the moment uh, politicians seem a long way away from a war footing on climate change anywhere so what needs to change how bad does it have to get in order for a war footing to be realistic what needs to happen very perceptive question. The trouble is we humans, as part of our evolutionary survival of getting through the next hour, are wired up to respond to what is urgent, not what is important. Mm -hmm. It's it's urgent that you go to the toilet or get food for your kids or kill that dinosaur or walking whale, but it's not important that you plan for three days down the line. So... We, I'm sorry, will do it only if we get wisdom, which can occur by the mass media or the internet mass media. I'm waiting for it to change the game because what we've got is the old masters of war running most of the media and saying that there's nothing to worry about. And so you might have seen the headline in some of the Murdoch press saying that there's going to be an ice age in 2030. And if you actually go to the trouble of reading that paper, at no stage do the scientists say that there will be an ice age in 2030. It was deliberate misrepresentation. And there's other newspapers that misrepresent what's going on and they are leading to the deliberate confusion. The only thing that will really change is either they change or they become obsolete or we have a disaster. In 2004, in October, the Gulf Stream switched off for about, I think it was reported in New South Wales, I think it was 10 days. And if it had stayed switched off for 100 days, this part of the world would be very cold. Sure, yeah. But it switched on again. We don't know why it switched off. We don't know why it switched on. We know it's been weakening. <laughs> the Gulf Stream. Um, let me just introduce the audience the concept of the thermohaline current. Thermo means heat. Mm-hmm. Haline is a Latin word meaning salt current. So pick a packet of water on the equator heading up towards Europe. It's really hot. That's the thermo part. And so some of the water molecules, the H2O, they look like little boomerangs. They evaporate off, leaving behind the water and the salt. So it's just a little bit more salty, hence the the hairline bit. And so as it heads up, it's evaporating off. And then it brings the heat from the equator up to Europe, heads up towards the North Pole. Uh, Now it's really getting dense. And there's some fresh water flooding down, which floats on top of it. So it dives down and chucks a yui. Is that a term that you guys understand? Yeah. yeah. Performs yeah, yeah. A, cha- a change of direction in the opposite direction, 180 degrees or something <laughs> like that. Chuck a yui. So it chucks a yui and goes back and then goes around the world. And this thermohaline current then comes back down across Africa, across the bottom of the world. Part of that circulation around the South Pole comes across the bottom of the Indian Ocean, across the, throws a little arm up there, across the bottom of Australia, into the Pacific, and then it goes around and around and around. It has been interfered with many times. I'm sorry to say that if the people who are running the media continue to do their deliberate disinformation, then the only... And they manage to control journalism on the internet which they can't because there's you. But 
if they're more powerful by numbers, then the only thing that will force us into action onto a war footing is um, a disaster, such as suddenly the thermohaline current switches off and then everybody in Europe has to become refugees in the Middle East. Wouldn't that be a turnaround? Is there, um, do you think, so, there's a debate often rages in this country, uh, in slightly wonky communities, right, but whose responsibility is it? So there's been a, a clarion call on scientists and a lot of people saying scientists should be more outspoken and more vocal about the threat of, for example, climate change, although not just that. Do you think scientists do have that responsibility to try to cut through or, or is, it not, is it too hard for them to do? Hard. You wouldn't expect your carpenter... Or Chippy, do you call yeah, them yeah, Chippy's here? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, electrician is a Sparky. Uh-huh. Okay, you wouldn't you expect your Chippy to be able to be a Sparky. Why on earth would you expect a scientist to be also a media communicator? Completely different skill. So you need other people to do that for them. And if you can find one who can do both, such as Carl Sagan or Neil yeah. Tyson Degrassi, is that, have I got his name right? I don't know. I that. think so. Other way around, I think. Yeah, yeah. Degrassi Tyson. Yeah. yeah. Um, you, you, they're, they're rare. Um, and the other thing is that with regard to predicting the future it, as being relentlessly bleak, um, it's a bit of a downer, even if it's true. And the thing is, it's a slow motion tumble. If you, the way to look at it one way is that anybody who's over, I think the current age is 31 years and 30 months. If anybody is under 31 years and 30 months, every month of their life has been hotter than the previous ever in recorded human history. They are living in climate change, and it's a slow-motion tumble. If you go to the Florida Keys, a fascinating thing to do, and just go to where they send out the pleasure craft that go out to catch the fish and look at the photos over the last three-quarters of a century. They get, the fish get smaller and smaller and smaller, and yet at no stage is people saying, gee, they're a bit smaller now because they're so happy that they've got a fish that's a quarter of a metre long. But herring used to be about two metres long. Wow. Two metres. Wow. There, there's a book over here. Bit of a pause. <laughs> there's a book over here called Ocean of Life by Callum Roberts. And the thing that made the change was fossil fuel. You can buy, you can buy a barrel of oil for, I don't know, 50, 80, 100 bucks. And in that barrel of oil, you've got the energy of two men working hard five days a week for a year. That's a bargain. That's 50 cents a week, a dollar a week, cheap. And so before, with fishing, you'd have the case where to catch a fish that was big, you'd have to get a big, strong guy, and you didn't have lots of them, and then tie them to the mast. And they would use their strength and haul this thing in by hand, or maybe two of them. Come along fossil fuels, you just get a steam engine, chug it, chug it away. Fish is not going to win. Haul in big nets. And that has led to the change. So before fossil fuels came around, if you look at the pictures, the drawings, the paintings of the fish markets, they've all got these huge fish which don't exist anymore. So we're changing the world, but it's been incremental. Mm. And by the way, it's a myth about the frog boiling to death. It doesn't notice the temperature. That was in my 27th book. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> you, um, you touched earlier on soda power and soda power in Australia. And 
we'll be honest, we were walking up here having a bit of an argument um, about why it is exactly that solar power works better in some places than in other places. So we wanted to put our cards... This is something we should definitely know, and regular listeners will be very disappointed that we don't know, but why specifically is solar power in, for instance, the southwest of England more productive than solar power in the north of Scotland, particularly when in the summer months, for instance, the north of Scotland hardly ever gets dark? Ah, you get... um, If you get a paper put out by the... International Energy Agency. And there is a concept in there that they raise called the energy payback time. Not the dollar payback time, but the energy payback time. And when applied to wind turbines, the energy payback time can be as short as six months to ten months, depending on where in the world you put them. So you have to put in a certain amount of energy to make them, and you get that back after six to ten months, and after that everything is free. With solar cells, is between 18 and 14 months, depending on how many photons you catch during a 24-hour day, which then depends upon how far north or south you are and the local cloud cover. In Australia, it's 18 months. In some parts of Europe, it's 40 months. It doesn't get worse than 40 months. Even if you've got crappy uh, skies and lots and lots of clouds, you're still looking at 40 months. There's a a basket, if you like, of, say, 15 different renewables. And in Australia, because of our population, our size, our climate, etc., etc., we need to use only two. And we can supply all of our electricity entirely from renewables at one-third of the price of burning fossil fuel from just two of them, which are solar thermal and wind. Now, solar thermal is not the stuff on your roof. Mm -hmm. You get the heat and then you turn 100,000 tonnes of salt or oil uh, into salt or oil at 500 degrees centigrade and then it comes down the tower. So you've got these acres or hectares of mirrors heating up the salt or the oil and then the hot salt, liquid salt comes down the tower, kisses against some water, flashes it into steam at 100 degrees centigrade, it turns the blades of a turbine and then that gives you electricity, it goes back up the tower and depending on how big you make it and how much storage you've got, you can run it for days without any sunlight once you've already got up to operating temperature. The disadvantage is that it has moving parts. The advantage is that you can run on stored heat. In Australia, that would provide 60% of our energy. So I would recommend in this case for anybody who's got the time um, it's only our future, is to go to the University of Melbourne homepage, Zero Carbon Australia. Zero Carbon Australia, University of Melbourne homepage. And they've got two documents. There's a two megabyte document. It'll take you two hours to read. There's a 10 megabyte document. It took me 10 hours to read. <laughs> and then it took me another 15 hours to turn it into something that I could then explain to other people. So that I had to invest 20 hours of my life into being able to give you that five-minute summary. And the second part of the energy equation is wind turbines, which suits Australia, and then you need a grid across Australia, which we don't have. For each country in a specific uh, situation, you need a different handbasket of those 15 potential renewables. So why is we, our last edition, looked at Australia politically and what's been going on in your homeland while you've been over here. I think mm-hmm. you might have you might have missed some of the hoo-ha. We've got uh, we've had five prime ministers in five years. Yeah. Italy or Australia, pick one. <laughs> um, and the question is, it seems to us, you know, it's understandable, I suppose, for somewhere like the UK, which isn't very sunny. It's understandable why there isn't a lot of solar. But you look at Australia, where no bugger lives for a start, mm. where it's all empty, um, and where it's hot, and mm. where it's quite windy on the coast. And, and you look at it and you go, why is it so contentious, the idea 
of switching to renewables in somewhere like Australia? I mean, what's your sort of... Why is the politics where it's at? Ah, in why Australia? the politics is there, I don't know, but it's definitely in denial. The prime, previous Prime Minister of Australia said, and I'll quote his four words, climate change is crap. Now, Absolute crap, I think you said. Well, yeah. if I was seeing a paediatric oncologist for my child with childhood leukaemia and they said use vinblastine or vincristine or whatever it was, whatever they said I'd go along with because I haven't had the 20 years of training. Why they choose to deny the science? I mean, they say, well, we should give equal side to each, equal time to each side of the argument. Well, whenever NASA launches a satellite or the Europeans, ESA or the Russians, you don't have half of the newsprint footage saying, let me point out that the earth is flat and, in fact, that God made the ferment, alabaster, and then he got some uh, blue carpet and he glued the blue carpet on the inside of the alabaster dome and he put some uh, fireflies up there to act like stars and the (laughs) earth is flat. We don't get 50% of our coverage of space Mars, interstellar space, exoplanet footage devoted to the people who are obviously wrong. And yet we do with climate change. The, uh, as much time is given to the 5% who are absolutely wrong. And you say, but 5%, haven't they got something going for them? Well, I reckon that's sort of your typical sort of off-the-rails ratio. For example, I've met uh, physicists who deny Einstein's theory of relativity that's just crazy. I've met a f- quite a few ministers of religion who no of various faiths, Christian and non-Christian, who no longer believe in whatever name you call their God, but still stay in there because they're humanitarian and they can do good for their community. But they don't believe in their God or, or whatever they call mm-hmm. their deity. So you've got 5% of the scientists saying there's no climate change and 95% saying there is, I think you can discount that 5%. Why the the federal government has chosen to do that in Australia, you'd have to look behind the scenes. You're never going to find that out. Are you optimistic? Oh, yeah. Do you think we can sort this out? We, humanity, can sort this out? Sure. If we decide right now we can have the whole planet running entirely off renewables for electricity within 10 years, then we've got the problem of the oceans. It's going to take a 1,000 years for them to dump their excess carbon dioxide. Unfortunately, the oceans are going a little bit acid. Now, when I say acid, I don't mean that you go down to the beach, put your foot in, and suddenly there's this bleeding stump whereupon the vampires come around and start eating you because you've invited them in because there's blood on you or something like that. But rather, the, the pH has shifted. Now, for those who are not familiar with chemistry, pH 14 is very alkaline up around the stuff in your dishwasher. pH 1 is very acid, like towards where your battery acid is. 7 is neutral. And the oceans are slightly alkaline, 8.2, and they've gone to 8.1. And you think, what difference does that make? It's just enough to mop up carbonate ions. You've heard of limestone, calcium (laughs) carbonate? To mop up enough carbonate ions so that they're not available to sea creatures to make either their shells or their skeletons and or both. And 
in the 25th of November, two years ago. There's a paper in Nature talking about how a creature called the pteropod, P-T-E-R-O, from the Greek meaning flat, uh, pod meaning foot, so it's a flat thing that's got a foot, um, uh, can no longer make its shells down in the Antarctic. And you think, well, I've never heard of it pteropod, it's not going to make any difference. Okay, let me introduce you to the concept of a flux. So there's a flux of money. The money comes into your pocket, then it goes into somebody else's shop, and then it goes into somebody else's pocket, and it goes around and around and around, and it might come back to you one day, that, that particular note or coin. And carbon atoms, you breathe out the carbon atoms, they go into an allotment where you're growing some corn and then you eat the corn and it goes out and it goes around and somebody else eats it. So the carbon atoms go around and around, they're in a flux. In the flux of carbon atoms on our planet, one in every eight goes through a pteropod. Not one in every eight million, eight. Uh. Eight. You didn't read my 34th book, House of Carls? No, you missed that one. Yeah, Terrible right. memory. Just, Look, you, oh. get, you can get all my stuff for free on the ABC homepage. Go to drkarl.com, D-R-K-A-R-L.com, and then there's all this stuff there for free for the last 10 years, the shortened versions. And the second thing is that the loss of the pteropod the, the is 70% of the food supply of the Atlantic salmon. So what we've done is we've denied is, is we've interfered with something that is basic in the movement of carbon around the planet and an important food source for our fish. Did it make the front page of any newspapers that you know? No. In fact they're saying, oh there's going to be an ice age in 2030. Don't worry, we're actually cooling down. They're lying. So uh, I wanted to ask you, Dr. Carl, about your house. A bit. So ah. your house, you you put solar panels on before they were cool, right? When they were yeah. still underground, you were into them, yeah? Well, to put them on my house, I've, I've got enough solar panels that give me, in winter, 16 kilowatt hours a day on a clear day. In summer, 34, and we use 10. We use 10, we make one and a half times as much as in winter on a sunny day and three and a bit times as much in summer. So I have been since 2007 a net exporter of electricity to the grid. Secondly, it cost me a lot of money, it cost me $80,000 and I did it because I'd earned some money and then I thought I'd spend it foolishly. And uh, you can buy the same thing now for 20000 but because I did that, I increased the number of solar cells being made and sold mm. and for every doubling of the number of solar cells manufactured, the price came down by 10%. So people today owe me a cup of coffee because <laughs> they're, they're, they're taking a free ride. So I was happy to do it as a social experiment. And also I've done the thing of putting an underground water tank, a 50,000-litre underground water tank, and filtering the water on the way in is just a whole big technological thing which I will explain sometime when I've got a spare day to write the process of how you filter your water. Um, and, and so when the... Next El Nino hits, which it may do now, it might not, we don't know. We only, uh, you only know after it's happened, for sure. Um, then I'll be able to have enough water to keep the garden going. Whenever there's any rain, I'll catch it. Um, so the root of my question was this. Um, what should people do in their everyday lives? Like, So you're motivated by technology, you're motivated by science and you understand you know you put solar panels on way before anyone else did but for a lot of people it's all a bit of a hassle and they think does it make a difference and people always ask us well what's the one thing i should do about about climate change what's your what's your answer that's very hard because unfortunately we're being ripped off when i was a kid do you guys read science fiction 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I was reading science fiction stories at the rate of one science fiction book a day from when I was 12 to when I was 32, and then I had to stop because then I started studying medicine and the body of knowledge I had to absorb was so great. But overwhelmingly, come the computers, man, we were going to have so much leisure time we wouldn't know what to do with it. What went wrong? How come the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer and have to work harder and can't afford a house in downtown London? So you've got these poor bloody nurses and fire officers and cops and waiters who are needed to keep the town running but can't afford to live there. What went wrong? I don't know. So getting back to the question, what is the one thing that we can do? Firstly, it's hard because most of us are working so hard we don't have Mm. time that is our own, where we can reflect. We're just busy on on a treadmill. Um, Secondly, we can operate on three levels, which is personal or business, corporate or political. And in 2007, I ran for politics in the Federal Senate and failed completely. And out of the 782,000 votes, I got only 42,000 votes. That's proving I'm totally irrelevant, but at least I gave it a go. So what I would recommend for some people is, yeah, you might become a musician or a scientist or an author, or go into politics, because there you have the power. In our sort of society, English, American, well, maybe not American, but English, American, Australia, a little bit American, power is not by a gun, it's by the ballot box. And so if you... All I've got is influence. I I can't pass a single law. And the law is how things run. And so I'd say for people, go into politics. And it's a dirty game. I think I might have picked up some of that from the Daily Mail. They were saying yeah. some awfully rude things about people whose politics they didn't like, getting down to the personal. Of, he's got stinky underpants. Well, I might be over-exaggerating, but it was almost down to the stinky underpants. No, stage. if you'd have read it this morning, you'd have seen some extremely personal things about the Prime Minister's private parts. But uh, oh. we'll tell you about that after. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so, so secondly, go in, thirdly, go into politics. Um, so do what you can at your own whatever level, but the business level, the, the corporate level and the... Personal and go and, and fourth, thirdly, go into politics and, and fourthly, um, try and get educated. But it is so hard. How can you get educated if you are a man or woman and you've got 1.2 or 2.2 children and you're working three jobs between you and you've got no time and you, you're so exhausted that you can barely look at the newspaper and all you do is you look at the Daily Mail and the TV and it says it's going to be an ice age in 2030. OK, that's it, I'm going to sleep. I'm exhausted because I've got to get up at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. It is really, really hard. I reckon put the information out like you guys are doing. Use the new media for good. Um, don't necessarily put up movies of cats. <laughs> we like cats. <laughs> not my cat. No one likes. No, my no one cat. likes your cat. Your cat's horrific. He's grumpy. Yeah. So I, I don't know. It's a very hard thing. Hmm. Uh, whatever you personally can do. Uh, we have a regular feature on this show, which is my six-year-old niece Arabella, oh. who um, occasionally reads out some some of the most kind of. Uh, wanton rubbish that politicians and um, corporate brands spew out on the environment. But um, I'm just struck by how often we've talked about the the future and and kids getting smarter. Mm. If she's listening, which Mm. she sometimes does, what would you say to her? What's your message to a six-year-old living in Scotland? Um, Move, obviously. Scotland Scotland (laughs) is nice. To a six-year-old kid, um, firstly, you'll have many different careers. Uh, secondly, be happy. Happy, happy counts for a lot. Um, thirdly, if you want to change the world, you've got to be comfortable. You can either be desperately poor 
or okay or comfortable where you've got a bit of spare cash or fabulously wealthy or ridiculously wealthy or obscenely wealthy. You don't need anything more than comfortable where you've just got a little bit of spare cash and in that way you have a base from which you as a person can go and change the world. So I was working with a guy, Fred Hollows, who was the eye doctor, who was um, Australian of the Year, and he said, look, Carl, um, you've got your bum hanging out of your trousers. Is that an idiom that makes sense in the United Kingdom? Well, it makes sense. The bum hanging out of trousers <laughs> means that you are so poor that your trousers are almost transparent and we can almost see right. your buttocks and your clothes. So I was desperately poor at the time. He said, look, Carl, this is ridiculous. You can't change the world until you get to being comfortable. You've got to be comfortable so that when the forces of evil aim a few arrows at you, you can shrug them off and keep going. So, Arabella, you'll have a great life. I'm really jealous. Now, one thing, Arabella, probably, probably you will be in the first generation to live forever, and by forever I mean 5,000 years with a healthy 18 to 25-year-old body, thanks to genetic engineering and CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R, look it up, and I'll be in the last generation to die, bummer, although I might just squeak through CRISPR. CRISPR is a genetic technology that, in plain English, I won't talk about what it is, but what it can do. You can have a little toy dog that you stuff into a handbag and you can change that living toy dog into a Rottweiler. Or you can have a child with cystic fibrosis and you can snip out all the cystic fibrosis genes. Or you can decide that you want to become a long-distance runner so you can start genetically engineering your muscle cells to be different. Or you can decide you want to become a rower in sports so you make yourself a bit taller with more upper body strength or whatever. We can change ourselves. These are the things that will be happening in your life as well as communication. And also I guess you'll probably, in your life, you'll find the first life off our planet and that's going to be really exciting and it's going to be an incredibly wide world so Arabella I'd also read lots of science fiction especially Alastair Reynolds he does um, what you call space opera Mm. so the human race is going to change enormously and there'll be some people who will want to be wired up to all their friends all their time and have things implanted in their bodies so they can stay wired up and at the other extreme there'll be people who want to grow their own crops and knit your own yoghurt, if that's how you get yoghurt, I think you knit it. Um, and we'll split into many different ways and we'll become, and with a bit of luck we'll become a space-going race. So um, advice, be happy, uh, yeah, uh, realise that you're smarter and um, than your parents, be kind to the poor buggers when they can't program the anti-matter generator again <laughs> or the dark matter machine or the dark energy machine because your kids will be smarter than you, don't worry about it. That's probably all we've got time for in this episode. And just before we go, I'd like to say thank you so much for answering our questions and for taking us on such an exciting and wonderful journey of science and communications and um, space hopping as well. (laughs) Uh, Where can people find you if they want to listen to more of your stuff? Ah, drkarl.com, D-R-K-A-R-L.com. I've got four podcasts. Uh, there's a BBC one and then there's a Great Moments in Science one, which is a five-minute story that on average takes me 20 hours to write. Um, and then there's the Australian Triple J podcast and then there's the Sleek Geek podcast. The Triple J podcast is a little bit more vivacious, shall we say, than the BBC one. 
and I'll give you an example. So on the Triple J podcast, once a woman rang in and said, hi, my name is Charlene, um, and whenever I have oral sex with my husband and his penis hits the back of my throat, I go temporarily deaf. So I got all my girlfriends and I asked them to do it, and they said it happens to them, why Dr. Carl? And the answer is... <laughs> so when you are listening to the quietest noise that you can possibly hear, your eardrum goes back and forth a distance equal to the diameter of a hydrogen atom. Now think about a sheet on a clothesline blowing in the wind and imagine that it's suspended by the top so you've got a bunch of clothes pegs. Americans wouldn't know this, they probably think you glue them on because they don't use clotheslines. But, so you, you clip them on with clothes pegs at the top and if a breeze comes along it just the, the sheet blows backwards and forwards. But suppose you then tie it to the ground at the bottom and the wind comes along and hardly moves at all. That's what's happening to the oral sex eardrum. When the penis hits the back of the throat, I think it hits the uh, eustachian tube and blocks it and puts a pressure wave on the internal eustachian tube which then locks the eardrum in place so that it can't be so fluid and easily able to move and as a result there's an increase in the pressure which then leads to a lack of compliance. That's a, specific, that's a specific engineering word. A lack of movement, a lack of freedom to move in the eardrum and so temporarily the outer world goes deaf. I think I haven't been able to get the funding. <laughs> well, we can, hang on. Yeah, we can, we can have a wet round. We'll, we'll, we'll Sustainable <laughs> listeners will be more than happy to pay for that one. Well, we have done uh, MRI sex funding to find out what happens to various parts of the human body. And, you know, people should be serious about it. Look, look, sex is not something that only terrorists do. Sex is the, is the most beautiful and sacred experience that money can buy, and people should respect that. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Carl, thank you very much for your time. Hugely appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Carl.